Welcome to the Shooting Times podcast, which is brought to you by Field Sports Press. Uh, the issue that we're focusing on today hits the newsstands tomorrow. Um, when I say tomorrow, it's Tuesday. So Wednesday, get down to your local shop if you don't subscribe. Um, you know, And if you do tend to go to your local shop, why not subscribe and save money? Um, I've you know, I think supporting your local shop is a very good thing to do. And of course, you should carry on doing that. You know, go down there and buy lots of beers or whatever. But subscribing is definitely the way to go. It's a lot cheaper. And at the moment, you also get uh, shooting insurance. So whether you're an air rifle shooter or a shotgun shooter or whatever it is you like to get up to, we should all be insured. Now, it's been a very interesting week for news. There's been a hell of a lot going on. But I think before that, I want to touch on something really important which struck me when I was walking my Spaniel this morning, which is that it's autumn. And I'm joined today by Matt Manning, um, probably the world's best-loved air gun shooter, I think. There's all sorts of uh, all sorts of epithets that I throw at Matt Manning in different situations. But let's go with that one for today. But Matt, you are a, uh, a huge fan of autumn. Is that is that right? It's definitely my favourite time of year to be eight shooting. Yeah, I mean, for the, the sort of, as you know, the majority of shooting I do is with air rifles. It's probably, this is the time of year when the, the richest opportunities are out there. So if you're woodland shooting, you've got acorns and beech mast attracting grey squirrels. Um, the nights are drawing in, so, so rat shooting on, on farms is starting to pick up. And obviously with harvest now underway, or in many cases wrapped up, you're getting that influx of rats moving in onto farmyards. So that gets busier. So yeah, from my from my point of view, it's that it's the, the the busiest, richest time of the year for sure. You're like a squirrel yourself out there getting sort of autumn's bounty and That's running right, around getting on the excited about autumn's bounty. <laughs> it's a funny thing because you know spring is always the time of year that people say, oh, the whole world comes to life and it's wonderful and you know new beginnings. And I get that, but actually, there's always been to me something very alive and wonderful and rich about autumn with salmon running up the rivers. And you know, I was seeing videos of people posting on uh, on x as they call it now formerly twitter of um pink foot geese uh, i never know whether to say pink footed geese or pink feet geese or whatever it is but anyway we all know the noise they make and they're pouring across norfolk at the moment really beautiful thing but anyway matt have you ever shot grouse never um so i assume really? that the subject we're about to tackle is going to be massive imposter syndrome for me <laughs> but no I, that's I've, why we got I've you on <laughs> yeah um i visited grace moors um in in scotland but I've, I've never actually shot grouse, no. Oh, really? Well, if anybody's listening and, the, you know, they've got a spare, uh, a spare butt or a spare peg, Matt's your, Matt's your man. We'll tell him to leave his air rifle at home and, uh, and bring some heavier arsenal. But I'd love to. Really interesting. Um, so in Scotland, the long-promised uh, grouse shooting bill, has, has, which would license grouse moors, is, um, is now sort of in play. Um, you know, it depends on who you ask how much grouse shooting brings to the Scottish economy. I mean, um, I think Scottish land and estates say that it brings £155 million per annum to the Scottish economy. I mean, I'm sure that there are anti-grouse shooting interests who would tell you that that's complete nonsense. And actually, you know, I think it is the case that 15% of the Scottish countryside uh, is, is grouse moor or is shot over. Uh, by grouse shooters and some people will say there are other things you could do with that in terms of renewables or ecotourism um, I think you know, I would disagree with that we don't really want to get into that completely but um, the point is is that this bill is now in play and what's very interesting I think is that nearly 400 businesses have joined together to urge the Scottish government to rethink their plans to license grouse moors. Um, you know the Scottish government are calling it licensing there are lots of people involved who say that Essentially, it's a sort of ban through the back door, um, you know, and, and I think 
At this stage, it's almost certainly going to be the case that there are some grouse moors that the Scottish government say, yes, fine, that's okay. And that there are others, probably more intensive grouse moors, that they say, no, you know, that's not okay. Burning and so on and quantities and so on of grouse on the ground. Um, it, it's a very interesting thing, but I think what I hope is that it brings home, you know, first of all, I hope that the Scottish government is listening because I think often these consultations are not actually consultations. They're just sort of, you know, uh, they allow whoever has called for the consultation to say, look, you know, we asked the question, we listened, and now we're doing, you know, this as a result of it when they actually do what they were going to do kind of all along. So I hope they are listening. But, but what's interesting is that nearly 400 businesses have come out and said this would be bad for us. You know, and these are guest houses, restaurants, pubs, and so on. Um, you know, I think that often gets forgotten about is that, is that where you have grouse moors, you have sort of little communities made up of beaters and pickers up and game dealers and so on. Uh, I think it's, it's a really interesting thing. And, and particularly in Scotland, where you have very few pubs and, and very few restaurants in rural places, you know, grouse shooting is essential. I, I think that's a massive thing, you know, and, and so many field sports where you've got fairly isolated rural communities, they get people mixing with each other, something we're told we need to do for our mental health. They get people out in the countryside enjoying fresh air, something we're told to do for our physical and mental health. Um, so, yeah, obviously, if 400 businesses are shouting, then I would hope that somebody's going to listen because there's obviously a serious business concern there. But there's a, obviously a human concern. Yeah. And also, I would say possibly an ecological concern. I, I, I'll put my hand up and say I, I don't understand the, the ins and outs of grace more management. But the one thing that did strike me when I was up in Scotland was the abundance of wading birds on land that is managed for grace shooting. Yeah. Um, and I can only assume that predator control probably plays a role there. Um, so you talk about ecotourism, but if that land's not being properly managed, it may be that the very species that might attract ecotourists aren't there because the habitat isn't. Yeah, I mean, it's really it's a really interesting one. You see on social media all the time, people will say, you know, grouse moors are ecological wastelands, you know, they're ecological deserts, they're dead zones. Look, I don't know where those guys are going to, but they're definitely not the same grouse moors that I visit. Because, you know, I was up uh, a place called Barningham in spring looking at a black grouse lek. I should say what remains of a black grouse lek because the black grouse lek there has, has fragmented um, due to people going up there with vehicles and mountain bikes and all that kind of thing. But... You know, the point is these places are extraordinary for birds that you're talking about, for lapwings, for curlew. I mean, curlew get talked about all the time, but for red shank, um, you know, and, and, and they just simply wouldn't be there if these places weren't managed in the way they are. So I hope also very much that that is, is taken into account and that's considered. I mean, I think often we end up making these battles about ourselves and, and about things that we like and dislike rather yeah. than making them about the the animals and you know I don't yeah and, and, and maybe as, as somebody who has as somebody who has never shot grouse something i can bring to the party is the fact that i don't have a vested interest i turned up at these places and was blown away by the diversity of wildlife there so that that that's my take on it so yeah. there's obviously a business case i think there's definitely a community and a human case and i would say there is absolutely an environmental ecological case in the defense of, of, of grace more management as is yeah, I think it's a really interesting. You know, look, as a as a journalist and as a journalist who writes a lot beyond shooting times, I often find myself, you know, trying as hard as I possibly can to go into things with a completely open mind. And look, there are things we've not got time to go into it now, but there are things in field sports that I think, if you really think about it, if you really understand and you really think about it, there are things that happen in field sports that you can say, actually, you know what, 
I'm not okay with that. I don't like that. I don't support that. Um, and at the same time, there are things that you end up thinking, oh my God, how can people not realize, you know, that this contributes in a, in a wonderful way to, to, you know, the local community and so on. Um, sort of moving off the hill and into the woods, uh, Capacaley, or into the forest, I should say. I mean, Capacaley are really kind of at last gasp stage. A couple of years ago, I slept out on a Capacaley let. I should say that I had permission to do that and it had been sanctioned and all that kind of thing. Uh, and it was the most extraordinary experience listening to the Capacaley cocks up in the trees. They make this incredible um, popping sound, like a little child hitting a, is it called a glockenspiel? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe you're better on that than, than I am. <laughs> the glockenspiel. But it, sound, it does sound like that. There's an incredibly woody sound. And, uh, and and it's and it's sort of now thought that Capacaley uh, don't really have long left at all. So they say maybe like three hundred birds now, um, you know, and and that was like double that in in, in twenty ten. And one of the causes that they found are um, deer fences, which is really interesting. So they fly into deer fences uh, because they don't see them. They don't register deer fences because they're not yeah. sort of you know part of their and uh, and they just you know garrote themselves and 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 die. So it's a kind of that race against time to get rid of these deer fences um, before, you know, the last Capacaley goes. It's a surprising one, really, because it surprised me that you've got a bird that is so endangered, yet we don't hear more about its plight. Um, it, it seems to be off of, uh, apart from the shooting community, it seems to be off of most people's radars. And funnily enough, when I, when I first skimmed over this, I thought that the problem with the fencing was that it was almost blocking wildlife corridors and keeping populations apart but it's actually like a physical um it, it's physically yeah. killing them when, when it when they strike it so you know, i would wonder what what would the impact be of losing this fencing it, is it straightforward that, that it can just be done without well i think i think the thing is is that the capacaley need forestry so that the, right. the, the fences are there to promote forestry regeneration or the regeneration yep. forestry. Um, but then it's killing the cat. So it's a sort of, it's a kind of catch 22 situation. I mean, we should say, and I'm sure lots of listeners know this, that Capacaley went extinct once before in Scotland. Yeah. And they were then brought in from Sweden. Um, if you're sort of really boring like I am, you can dip into the archives of the Dundee Courier newspaper. And it talks about an Irish gamekeeper coming through Dundee with um, a number of birds of the cock of the wood variety. And he's taking them um, to, to deliver them, I think, to, to an estate that was owned by a guy called Bredel Bain. I'm, I'm possibly getting some of this wrong. Um, but they, they released them there. And then there were other releases. And, and you get some people who say that actually they don't think Capacay ever disappeared completely. But that's kind right. of... It's a slightly romantic thing, like saying you know, there are still wolves roaming in, in, in the hills. Uh, another thing that struck me about this piece was that pine martins were, were also mentioned as, as having some impact on the population. Now, that chimed with me because, funnily enough, I've heard talk, you know, where I am in Somerset, there's been talk of introducing or reintroducing pine martin to certain areas uh, to assist with the control of grey squirrels, which on the face of it, it sounds like a great thing because grey squirrels are causing all kinds of problems. As, as we've spoken about before, with not just damage to trees, but impact on, on woodland species. The concern that I have about that is the fact that I would assume most predators go for the low-hanging fruit first. So are, are there species that are more vulnerable and more desirable than grey squirrels that pine martins are going to impact on and, and munch their way through before they resort to the trickier quarry? Mm the trickier pursuit of grey squirrels. So again, that, that chimed with me seeing that the, the concern about 
the possible impact of pine martens as well as well as this um, deer fencing. That's really interesting. Another story that was was interesting to me is uh, just on, on venison. Um, so you know, there's there's a move to put more venison into charities that are trying to feed people who are struggling to put food on the table really interesting thing i mean we've seen initiatives like that in the past with pheasant and with partridge and so on um you know i think i think that it's such a nice idea and it's such a great idea you've got all of this protein out there and you know this protein which is actually causing damage to forestry in places but how you actually get it into the third sector i think is the difficult thing um so that supply chain is is quite interesting um so we will we will see how that plays out um i always enjoy the little to do this weeks that we have in the news pages um i i tap them up at the end of the week i think i've got slow cooking in there you know it's a slow cooking season you'll be seeing the first partridges in your local butcher shop or indeed you've probably been shooting your first partridges and i think there's nothing better on a sunday than spending four hours cooking a partridge have you cooked any game this season yet or are you still on the squirrels um i'm still 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 on the squirrels i don't do a lot of game shooting as i expect you're aware um little little bit of walked up pheasant shooting but no, for me, but no, again, going back to the venison point, fantastic that, that charities and people that, that need food can benefit from it. But it shocks me that people, that, that there is this surplus of venison and people aren't clamouring for it anyway. And, and that, I find that quite a yeah. frustration that um, it's tasty, it's relatively healthy, it's relatively affordable. Um, everybody tries to look right on by talking about how we should be looking at how food is farmed, how it lives, how it dies. Venison, wild venison, lives in the wild, has a brilliant life, isn't, isn't pumped full of antibiotics, isn't indoors at any point, isn't carted off in a, in a truck to queue up at an abattoir. So it seems to it ticks all these brilliant food boxes, yet here we are still trying to look for some means of getting more people to eat it. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's absolutely right. I think it is. I mean... You know, it is that thing of, of people do want it, but it's how you get it to them. And it's how you get it to yeah. you at a sort of sensible price as well. It's um, interesting piece, very, very different, changing lanes in a big way. Uh, so the trophy hunting import ban um, that went through the Lords last week. That was, I mean, as much as anything. So really, that's just about the Lords saying yes or no to the ability to import so-called trophies. So people who go big game hunting, they like to bring back, you know, uh, heads or whatever it whatever it might be it's not you know it's a really niche thing really i mean i actually i don't know anybody i don't think you um who goes trophy hunting with any kind of regularity but you know the lord said that they think really that actually it was a completely pointless move it was just symbolic um and there were a lot of conservationists who were saying that really trophy hunting so-called has been a very good thing in places so places like namibia um places like Botswana. And then on the other side, you had uh, this sort of animal rights lobby who were calling for it to go completely. They They were there outside parliament with inflatable lions and so on. So you had kind of emotion on one side and practical conservation on the other. And I think one of the really interesting things with some of these scientists is that they will say that I actually hate the idea of trophy hunting. They will say, I hate the idea of shooting a lion or a tiger or whatever it might be. Um, but, you know, it is a good thing for uh, for conservation. And I think I think that's really interesting. And I think there's probably a point there for all of us in, you know, we all have things that we like and dislike in terms of shooting, whether it's, you know, shooting woodcock or high pheasants or whatever it might be, but trying to kind of see past our own initial uh, 
emotional, visceral reaction, and and to see actually what the real impact is um, in lots of different ways is is a, is an important exercise. Absolutely, and, and we, we touched on this last time, and again. I, I, it's not something, something I know a great deal about, but it strikes me as that the ultimate Robin Hood arrangement, if you like, because you've got wealthy people who want to go out and shoot an animal, which I assume is probably likely to be culled anyway. And their paying to do that is sustaining the management of the herd of what is often quite an endangered species. So it strikes me, if you think with your head and not your heart, as a really logical way to do it. And, and, I, and I read, you know, in the article, I think somebody said they were disgusted, or, or words to that effect, of the thought of, of trophy hunting. And this goes back to the point that you actually made about sort of our perception of things. Now, th this is a bang that I, a drum that I bang quite a lot, but how on earth can we live in a society where people have pet cats? And somebody that may well have a pet mm. cat be disgusted by trophy hunting or, or, or fox hunting for that matter, or, or any kind of shooting because you have a trophy hunter, I assume, goes trophy hunting for their own indulgence. A cat owner has a domestic pet cat for their own indulgence, yet that cat could kill hundreds, if not thousands, of birds, mice, slow worms, frogs, toads every year slowly. Mm. I imagine it's quite quite a prolonged death. So people are quite ignorant of the fact that they're killing lots of animals for their own gratification through having a cat, yet they're disgusted by the thought of somebody killing one animal for a trophy and in also doing that, helping to protect a herd. And, and it, it blows my mind that the shooting hunting community doesn't use this comparison more frequently because I think that the irresponsibility of having a predator like a domestic cat and letting it run right and kill what it likes is absolutely mind-blowing but it's utterly accepted because it's perceived as normal and i think once something becomes normalized it's very hard to see how how crazy it is but if you if you i think there are about 11 million domestic cats in the uk so if you think about the clobbering that our wildlife's getting through through them um it gives the whole thing a bit more context, really. Mm, mm. From from big cats to little cats. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, and I, I would say <laughs> I am not, not suggesting that we get rid of people's pet cats right now, but I do wish that people like the RSPB, people like the celebrities that like to influence people's views on, on the politics of wildlife management, I wish they would do more to educate people on the impact of domestic cats so that maybe when somebody's pet cat dies, they would think twice about replacing it and, and the impact that it has on on our wild wildlife, which so many people claim to care so much about, but maybe having a far greater negative mm. impact on it than they realise. Yeah, one one thing we did last week in this issue that I really like is we dug into the archives to look at some letters from the past, which is a really fun thing to do. Um, and <laughs> there's some bizarre conversation going on about um, whether shooting is easy or not. <laughs> it's just, just, so I would say definitely not. But it's nice because you know, it, it just gives such a such a connection to the past. So you've got a, a Mr. D. E. Don from County Waterford in Ireland, 
um, who talks about being taught to shoot by Percy Stanbury. So that is really going back quite, I mean, Stanbury was like one of the, the great shots, one of the great shooting instructors. Um, Mr. Waterford, I assume it is Mr. Waterford, um, says that he thinks Mr. Stanbury is the greatest shot in the world. And what little talent he has, he owes entirely to Mr. Stanbury. And he says that Mr. Stanbury said to him, all you need to do is to point your finger under your barrels as though you're pointing to something in the room and your shooting will improve exponentially. I imagine shooting is not as simple as that, having had a fair few lessons and having, you know, shot pretty badly myself over the years and, you know, having occasionally shot well over the years. But, but Mr. Waterford of Ireland thinks, absolutely, Mr. Stanbury is right. You just point at the thing and, uh, and it's job done. So maybe one for, um, for our, our readers yeah, to try. And I, I think there is a grain of truth in the fact that we tend to overcomplicate shooting and probably think it through too much and beat ourselves up too much. I mean, as somebody who shuffles frequently between rifles and shotguns, that seems to be an absolute disaster yeah. because obviously rifle shooting is very measured and calculated and methodical and overthought out for sure. And then when I pick up a shotgun, I'm trying to think about the speed of the target, the distance of the lead, like almost like I'm rifle shooting. And that's, that's an absolute mm. disaster. I, I think that the, the times when I don't think about it and it's more fluid, um, it's like sportsmen say, isn't it? Think about muscle memory. Don't try and overthink the actual process and then, and also beat yourself up when it's gone wrong because then everything collapses. So there's, there's probably a grain of truth in the fact that, that shooting or many forms of shooting could be simpler to do well if we didn't overthink them and overcomplicate them quite as much as we do. I think that's true. I think that is true. I really enjoyed, uh, in fact, I've very much enjoyed lately, we've got a young deer stalker called Charlie Blant, uh, who is a professional deer manager up in the Highlands, but she's been currently over in, let me get this right, I think she's been in Colorado, uh, and she's been bow hunting, which, look, bow hunting is something which is hugely controversial. This piece isn't about bow hunting, but she's just been bow hunting, and she writes a thing for us called Stalker's Diary, and her Stalker's Diary is about looking back at her time at college. and. Um, she talks about all of the old men she met over the years who said to her, you'll never make it as a professional deer manager. And she's now like a really, you know, she's a rising star of the, of the deer management world. She's very articulate. She's a very good writer. She's actually writing a book about rural Scottish mythology at the moment, I think, which is very interesting. Um, but she's just a real character. And it kind of, you know, shooting times for the past 141 years has been full of real characters, sort of like some real rogues, actually. I mean, Lots of editors of shooting times have ended up in prison over the years. It's not something that I seek to uh, to emulate, but you know they're they're like a fun bunch. And I and I and I read Charlie's stuff, and I think you know she is uh, she is shooting times through and through in so many ways. Uh, and it's really good to have more women writing in the magazine. I mean, I think one of the things that shooting has failed to do over the years actually is to is to show how like diverse in some ways we can be, and to encourage more people into the sport. So I'm you know, I'm really really proud to have uh, more women writing in the mag than ever charlie is a is a fantastic addition and not not because she's a woman but because she's brilliant at what she does and she's real you can tell yeah. when, when you yeah, read yeah, is, her yeah. pieces yeah, she, she's out there doing it she loves it she cares about it she is properly emotionally invested in it um and that absolutely comes across i mean she's also got a huge following on social media and hats off to her she has she's yeah. Um, won that following through being real. She, she's not. She's not depending on false eyelashes and all, augmented lips. She is 
not people like, follow not like her. you. Not like you, not, Matt. Not like you me. That, no, that, that's my diversity box that I will be revealing next week. Just follow you yeah. for your good exactly. looks. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, but no, she, she, she is, she's real and, and it comes across and she is a brilliant addition to the Shooting Times team as far as I'm concerned and to, to field sports community yeah, no, in general. I'm, I'm very, very proud to have her. Um, so moving to wild fouling, really important at this time of year. is a big part of Shooting Times' DNA. Um, Simon Garnham, now talking about sort of being real and I've been lucky enough to go out wild fouling a couple of times for Simon Garnham and I just, uh, everything, Simon Garnham is so good. He's, he's an apple farmer. He uh, is head of English at his local high school and he's one of the most passionate wild fouls I've ever met. He's a really lovely guy and, um, and when you go out with him, you just, you know, I, I've, I've occasionally you know, left, left London and, you know, you're slightly tired or whatever, slightly washed out, and you just get up there and, and, and you kind of feel yourself coming back to life because Simon's just so engaged with the marsh around him. Um, and, he, and he writes about going out with his young dog in, in this week's issue and, and the geese being there and the ducks being there. And it's just a beautiful... He, he's one of those writers who, you know, we all look back and say there were great writers in the past in shooting time. You know, we've currently got four contributors who are in, in talks with one of the, the biggest publishers in the world about writing books for them. And that's on the back of stuff that they've written for Shooting Times. You know, that the quality of their writing has been mm-hmm. like, noted. Simon isn't one of those, but, but, you know, he is also a fantastic writer. I think that's what sets Shooting Times apart is the fact that, you know, you've, you've got these colourful and, and, and diverse writers, and, and Simon in particular, actually having just recently read that piece, he just paints beautiful pictures with words and it's not it's not about the technical side of shooting he's not talking telling you how to improve your shooting technique or what cartridges you should be using or what camo pattern you should be wearing he is just making you feel like you are there or you want to be there and and that that is a a, yeah for me to, to sit down after a busy day at the desk or doing whatever and have a five minutes with a cup of coffee and read an article like that that, that, to me, justifies the price of shooting times alone. We should put it up. We should double it. We'll yeah. double it. Um, I, I also actually did a piece by talking about telling people how to do things, and that is, that is also part of what we, what we do. Sure. Is, you know, I like to think that people's shooting improves through reading shooting times. Steve Rawsthorne has a piece in this week's issue on shooting over dogs. Now, that's quite an interesting thing because you know, I've been up, uh, I'm going up to Lewis soon actually to shoot grouse over setters, a very small number of grouse, walk a long, long way. But it's all about watching the dogs and seeing if they're coming on the point or rather if they're going to set. Um, and I've been up there before with people who are very much driven shots and they kind of struggle because they're just not used to it. So I think that's mm-hmm. a really interesting thing, actually. He has a lot of good advice. And one of the things that really stays with me, and I've heard this before from other people, but it's very good advice, is not to rush the shot when you're walking up. So, you know, if a bird gets up in front of you, a spaniel flushes a bird or whatever it may be, make sure that your feet are in the right place and you're onto that bird before kind of, you know, shooting. Like, don't go off kind of, you know, half cock just because you're, you know, you're overexcited. Yeah. That's really, really good advice. Good advice in life probably as well in some kind of metaphorical way. Yeah. How, how technique-based is air rifle shooting, Matt? Firstly, it's more... It's very equipment based because you're dealing with relatively low power output. Um, precision is the be all and end all. So, so you're, you're delivering a fairly slow projectile and light projectile to a very small target. So precision is everything. So it starts with choosing the right gun, matching it with the right pellet and the right optic, 
and making sure that you you know that that pellet will hit the same spot every time. So people that say, what's the furthest distance you can kill something with an air gun? That, that's a, the, the, the gun will potentially outperform the shooter every time because you would expect it to be able to put pellet on pellet at whatever ranges you'll be hunting over. So precision comes first, and then it's being able to replicate that amazing, amazing precision that you have created while shooting paper or card targets out in the field. So the technique boils down to then getting yourself into a very stable shooting position. Quite often, again, I spoke earlier about you know, um, the, the knights are drawing in and rats are moving on to farmyards. Now, for me, a lot of my ratting, I will be sat on a stool with the gun on a tripod. So it's all about, ra- rather than being an amazing marksman, it's about setting up situations in which you give yourself the easiest shot. So you know, you know on the range or in, on, the, in, on your garden range that you've got your kit, absolutely precision, pellet on pellet, and then it's being able to recreate that stability out in the field to ultimately be rewarded with that most humane shot. So, so air gun shooting, rather than being an amazing shot, it's more about engineering situations that put you quite close to your quarry and give you what will be the most straightforward shot. Interesting, interesting. So it's sort of field craft based. Um, lastly, I wrote my leader this week, of, of course, on uh, Bully XLs. We were all talking about Bully XLs. If, if, if any of our listeners don't know what they are, these are kind of big. They're quite hard to define, actually. I think that's part of the problem. But they're sort of, I don't know, are they like a successor to the pit bull? There will be people listening, I'm sure, who are sort of up in arms and will tell you that's not what they are. But these big dogs. And uh, we were all talking about these these big dogs kind of last week. Um, and Rishi Sunak said they're going to be banned. We're going to ban them. Um, you know, it seemed to be sort of they felt it was the right thing to say. But I think there's just a really interesting point there. I was I was I was trying to make with dogs that I'm sure if a bully XL comes at you, it's a pretty frightening thing. You know, there've been lots of videos going around. But I think we've got a fundamental problem in the UK that people don't take dog ownership seriously enough. Right? You know, I spend a lot of time training my dog and my dog is reasonably good but she's not you know she's not perfect right you know this morning my dog ran up to somebody who clearly didn't like dog who who sort of screamed and walked off the dog didn't even jump up the dog didn't even get that close to her but i called the dog back and the dog didn't come back you know and that's like a failure on my part right but i do take dog ownership pretty seriously so i think i don't know matt i think have you got a poodle is that right oh, oh god i can't i can't believe we've come out so i'm ticking another diversity box here <laughs> we we have a pet cockapoo richard negus is probably going to hunt me down right. and kill me um <laughs> but yeah his his sole purpose in life is being a pet for the kids and he he has it very easy but but again He's trained. He's kept under control. I wouldn't let him run yeah. amok in fields or in woodland. If, if he needs to be kept under close control, he is kept under close control. And like you've just said, when, when your dog jumped up at somebody or, or didn't jump up but got too close to somebody and wouldn't come back, you accepted that that was your failing. And I think this is a big problem. Yeah. That every, everybody knows their rights and nobody knows their responsibilities. And I think it's, it's a big, it's certainly the case often with dogs that, People say, no, I'm not being told what sort of dog I should have, blah, blah, blah. Fine. But then you have a responsibility to keep that dog un- under close control. And I suppose there is also an argument that if my cockapoo or your, you, you have a spaniel, don't you? Yeah, a spaniel, yeah. Yeah, so, so if, if your dog got out of control and was really harassing somebody, they, could, they, I would imagine, would find it much easier to push away and overcome 
than a bully XL. So there, bully there XL, might be yeah. a question to be yeah. asked: what, Why? Why do you require a bully XL over a spaniel? God forbid, a cockapoo, a Labrador, or whatever. So I'm, I'm not sure what the answer is. I, I, I don't like banning. I, I think banning <laughs> things. I'd rather that you could trust people to know their responsibilities. Um, I don't know. And again, it looks like we're getting another knee jerk. If, if, if Rishi uh, Sunak has said we're going to ban these dogs, we often see knee jerk reactions when when people at large get upset about something, and it's not always the right outcome. And I think that boils down to the fact that very often politics is about winning elections and not doing what's right. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I, yeah. No, I mean it's interesting. And look, you know, all of us who shoot, we've been on the sharp end of uh, of of decisions that have been made due to trying to get kind of quick wins right quick political wins so i think the bully xl one is interesting for us because most of us don't have bully xls but what do we really know about them i don't know i think the final point i I would like to make on that is if you said to me i live in tooting and i'm thinking of getting a working cocker spaniel what do you reckon i would say that is not a sensible dog for you to get so i think there's a sort of i think there's a there's a funny point here where people just think i want to get a dog they don't think what kind of dog would be would be right yeah, for me. Would match their um, lifestyle, you know. And exactly. And my little dog, all she wants to do really is is do like tasks. She wants to bring you things. She wants to work cover because that's what she wants, you know. And 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 the lots of people I see who have spaniels, they aren't for them. I see all kinds. I see Rhodesian Ridgebacks. I see people out with English pointers, beagles, you know, like crazy, really. And 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 I think you know, I think that that maybe uh, I often say to people, shooting times doesn't take strong editorial positions, but I think maybe the right dog for the right person we're going to we're going to take that cause up going to take that yeah, cause no, up yeah i, I think that, right that's a very that's a, a very just cause and it does it, it goes back to the question what why do you want that type of dog maybe you have a perfectly good reason maybe you don't i don't know yeah <laughs> I mean, by this time next week, I'll have probably gone and got myself a bully XL. I'll have to take it all back. But (laughs) Anyway, well, thank you very much for tuning in. This has been the Shooting Times podcast with me, Patrick Garbraith, the editor of Shooting Times, and Matt Manning, famous Matt Manning. Um, Do head down to buy your copy of Shooting Times. Do subscribe. And do check out all our other magazines, actually. Been reading Trout and Salmon. I used to read my my old neighbour uh, used to give me copies of Trout and Salmon when I was a teenager, and I've I've been reading it again now that that Field Sports Press has bought Student Times and Trout and Salmon and various other titles. So do do that. It's sort of there's something quite fun about reading a magazine that represents a community that you're not actually kind of wholly part of. It's, it's quite interesting, sort of looking through a window. Thank you very much, and uh, we hope you'll join us next time. Mm-hmm.